morning, everybody. Good to see you. A week ago, I was in Ukraine, as stated. Thank you for your prayers and your support. I preached at two churches last week on a Sunday that have been formed in the last two years as a result of refugees traveling across the country, and I visited a United Nations refugee center in the city of Kiev, uh, where a church is <coughs> currently supporting the refugees and preaching Christ to them, and we gave a discretionary gift to that church for that work from the giving that you gave to us. We did that a week ago. If you want to hear more about an amazing trip we had, do come along uh, this evening. But thank you so much for uh, your prayers. <clears throat> do turn with me to the book of James, um, if you have a Bible, um, because we're going to look at the first section. As Dave has said, we're starting a new series Today, we are going to be studying the whole book of James all the way through, and we're going to look at the first section today. We're going to actually look at it verse by verse. We're going to read it in sections, and we're going to see what this amazing book has to say to us. So if you have your Bible ready, um, we're going to start right now. I'm only going to read one verse, and then we're going to have a lot of things to think about before we even get to verse 2. So have a look at the first verse. The greetings in the Bible sometimes seem a bit uh, kind of insignificant in the letters until you really think about them, and this is no exception. James, <coughs> it says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, <coughs> greetings. Well, that's all very simple. First question, who is James? There's an awful lot of Jameses in the Bible. Gets a bit confusing. Do you remember Peter, James, and John, the top three? Well, it's not that James, because he was martyred very early in the church. It says in Acts 12. There's another James in the group of disciples, James, son of Alphaeus. It's probably not him either. This James is probably, according to most scholars, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had four half-brothers. One of them is stated in the Gospels as being called James, the oldest son of Joseph and Mary. Do you understand what I mean by that? The oldest son, Jesus, being the firstborn from his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. But of the naturally born children, the oldest. And it says in the Gospels that they didn't believe in Christ during the time of his ministry. But it says in 1 Corinthians 15, amazingly, Paul says, that when Jesus rose again from the dead, he appeared to various different people, and he puts a little note, and he said, and he appeared to James, his brother, half-brother, almost certainly. Scholars and early church historians are more or less unanimous that this half-brother of Jesus only believed in him after he died. And he had an individual resurrection appearance from Jesus. And then as we read the Gospel of Acts, uh, the, book, the book of Acts, we find that a James appears after the other James, the brother of John, has died, another James appears and he becomes the senior figure in the Jerusalem church, Acts 15. Jesus, James, the half-brother of Jesus, appears to become a senior leader in the first church. And he never believed in Jesus during his lifetime until the resurrection. By the way, <clears throat> it's never too late for people to believe. 
They can say no, 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 for many, many years, and suddenly they have a revelation and they say yes. That happened to James. Who's he writing to? Well, there's a very extraordinary phrase used here, isn't there? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, who are the 12 tribes? Well, you know what that immediately makes you think. It makes you think of the Jewish people, doesn't it? And they've been scattered among the nations. They've been moved. They've had to move for some sort of reason. So who could these potentially Jewish people be who've been scattered? Well, if we look at the book of Acts, suddenly it all fits together. Because in the book of Acts, chapter 8, the first Jerusalem church, of which James was a senior leader, was almost all Jewish. And in Acts chapter 8, suddenly there was a persecution. And what happened, it says in Acts 8, that all of them were scattered except the apostles. Are you beginning to get the picture? Jews, but these Jews are not just any old Jew, excuse the expression. They are believing Jews, what we call Messianic Jews. They've seen, they believe in Jesus. They're in the first church. James is one of their senior leaders, and suddenly they've been scattered among the nations. Acts 8, Acts 11 verse 19 shows the trajectory where they got scattered to. They went up north into Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and in modern parlance, all the way around there. And they're scattered, and they form different communities as they go. Now, so can you just get the picture? Here is James who joined the apostles as an extra addition through amazing, miraculous circumstance, based in Jerusalem, thinking of all the people who used to be in his congregation, who were once in Jerusalem, and now they're scattered. Are you with me? Can you see the trajectory? And he's writing to them, and he's not writing to one church. You know, Paul says to the Corinthians, to the Romans to the Thessalonians. No, 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 no. This is what you call a general letter. This is to lots of different churches in different places that came about because of a persecution and a scattering. And they, they, a group settled here and a group settled there. They went to this town and to that city and to that village and they said, right, well, we all believe in Jesus. We've scattered here. We're finding jobs. Let's form a church here and here. And so James one day, a little bit later, prompted by the Holy Spirit, sitting in Jerusalem, thinks, <clears throat> how can I help those people? Are you with me? Now, this was before EasyJet. <laughs> you know, this is before Eurorail. This is before motorways and highways and limousines and taxis, trains, helicopters, Modern evangelist private jets. <laughs> it's before those days. He's still got to look after the people in Jerusalem because a new church is gathering there after that persecution period. What can he, what's the best thing he can do? He can't, he can't get to all those places very easily. So he does a very New Testament thing. He writes a letter. A circular letter. Now, imagine you're in one of those churches. There's 30 of you. 
you're worshiping Jesus, you're trying to find your feet in a new country, it's been five years, and someone knocks on the door and says, guess what, folks? We don't need a preacher this morning. I've just received a letter. James has written to us. And we've just been sent a copy. Oh, the sense of excitement in the church. James has actually written to us. Well, it's to all the people who've been scattered, but it's coming to us today, and they roll out the scroll. He can't come to see them personally. And they read this verse, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And by the time they said that, half the church would be in tears. My goodness. He remembered us. It's been so hard since we've left Jerusalem. But he remembered us. What's he got to say? That's the kind of feeling. Does that make sense to you? Think about that as we actually read the text. Verse 2 to 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Isn't it amazing? The first thing he says is, count it pure joy, when you face trials of many kinds. Now, when he's speaking to that congregation, they know exactly what he's talking about. What sort of trials have they experienced? They've lost their homes, some of them. They've lost their jobs in Jerusalem. They've lost some of their friends. They've lost contact with their church leaders. They've lost their community. They may be in a place where they're struggling with the language or the culture. They're outsiders. They're facing trials of many kinds. And he said, when you face trials of many kinds, and this is one of the hardest things that's ever been said in the Bible, by the way, until you really get to the bottom of it, this is a very challenging thing. When we face trials, now this is very personal. Many of us here face big trials. Count it all joy. That doesn't mean that the circumstances are good. They're not. But he's saying, get the perspective that even in those incredibly difficult circumstances, God is doing something in you with your faith. What he's interested in is your faith developing and growing so that you become fruitful and powerful even when the odds are against you. Is that making sense? Powerful and fruitful, even when the odds are against you. Now, let's think personally. Many of us have something in our life which we would say, that is a trial. Loneliness, indebtedness, depression, 
rejection by your family because of your f- faith. Some enduring difficulty in your family. As I, think, as I think personally of myself, I think of the long-term illness of my wife, Jane. It's a trial. Last Sunday, I was at a conference, or last weekend at a conference, with a whole group of people, all of whom have been through the fires of trial because their churches in the east of Ukraine were overwhelmed by persecution very similarly to Acts 8. And when they go to the New Testament, the first place they go to is Acts 8. And the first type of story they talk about is scattering. And the first type of trials they think about are the trials of persecution. But there are other trials, trials of many kinds. Now, one Peter says something very similar. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 says this. Though now for a while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What Jesus wants on the day when he comes, by the way, folks, is this. He wants to be able to say of his people whatever the world threw at them. Whatever suffering they went through. They loved me. And they were faithful to me. And he wants to say that publicly to the whole universe on the day of judgment. So that all the powers of darkness can hear the testimony of King Jesus to say, these people loved me when the odds were against them. They didn't just believe because they thought I'd give them a comfortable life. They believed because I'm the Son of God and the truth. And they believed because they believed in an eternal destiny. That's what he wants to say of you and me. And so when trials come, faith potentially is strengthened. If we don't fall into a couple of dangerous temptations, which I'll talk about later on. This is making sense to you. This is quite profound. When trials come, our faith can grow. Let me now tell you the story. We're going to just put up a photo now of the guy who heads up the network I've been working with, Igor, his name, his wife, Tanya. Here they are a couple of years ago. I just want to tell you their story as an example. They church planted in eastern Ukraine at great cost. One of the costs was they would never have enough money to buy their own house. They counted the cost, and his wife desperately wanted her own home, which she could call her own. But she said to her husband, I'll give that up in this life if we can just advance the kingdom. And so they lived in flats. And then something amazingly good happened, and they managed to buy a tiny little flat in eastern Ukraine. They were really thrilled, and I visited the flat. They had three children, very small by our standards. They were very proud of it. 
And in the spring of 2014, when the separatist movement was starting there, they started receiving threatening telephone calls. If you stay here, we'll kill you. You're, a what, you're an American spy, you're a fascist, we don't want Protestant churches here, we like President Putin, that kind of thing. <coughs> they fled their town, they left their home, which they just bought, they took their children away, and they moved to another town. Lots of their friends moved with them, and in that new town, in the free area of western Ukraine, they planted another church. They now live in a fifth or sixth floor apartment, and there's no lift. The lift doesn't work. And they had to take his mother, who's 79, in to live with them. She lives with them. She's very ill. Now, if that happened to me or you, what would we do? These are my friends. I've been working with them for 15 years. We've talked about all these things. They, everything I've told you, they told me. They put this verse into practice. And they said, whatever we've lost, we're going to just live for God. We're not going to look back. They keep saying to me, we don't look back. We're looking forward. We're not hanging on to what we've lost. We're not getting bitter about those people who upended us. Now they've planted a successful church and they're now planting churches across the whole country and opportunities to serve God have opened up of unprecedented proportions, which I'll tell you about this evening. They're the sort of people who would understand this text very, very powerfully. But you and I may face fundamental trials and sufferings and difficulties in life, not brought about by those type of circumstances, but brought about by other things that are really deep, just as deep as those. And what God can do even in those dark and difficult times is he can produce a depth of faith and trust in him that enables us to get through very dark times with the help of brothers and sisters. And then our faith begins to shine in a special way, like theirs does. And God's uh, amazingly, even in dark times, I don't wonder if you've ever noticed, even in the dark times, he opens up something new that you can do, some amazing ministry or opportunity. We have to ask for wisdom, it says, in the passage. Let's go back to that passage. Just go back one slide. What is that wisdom? When things are really dark and difficult, what is that wisdom? I've thought about this a lot. That wisdom mostly is getting God's perspective on what's happening. Seeing the bigger picture. Now, there are some sufferings in life which we get into because of our own fault. We're not talking about that. We have to, to bear responsibility for that. We're talking here about things that happen that really we just can't control. Sometimes there's an evil tinge to them. Sometimes they're just circumstantial. If you trust God and you ask for wisdom, he will give you insight and perspective 
that, sh that helps you interpret your life's journey in a fresh way. And for some people, that's an urgent need today, and God can give you that wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Don't doubt. And he'll show you. Let's just move on. Verses 9 to 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, here's a very dramatic statement for you. Who are the people in humble circumstances? The very people he's just spoken about. The trials of life bring humility, economic humility. You're, you're, you're poorer. You haven't got the resources. You haven't got the control over your life. And yet, when you're in that situation, miraculously, you're really strong. Let me tell you a story that illustrates this. 1978, I worked in South Africa in a medical mission hospital. And one of the volunteers who worked alongside me, I was age 19, there was an old guy who came from Johannesburg, and uh, he was a medical doctor of a Jewish background, and he'd retired, and he was just helping in this project. Uh, he was a believer. Later on, I found out his story, because he invited me to go and stay in his house in Johannesburg when he wasn't there, and I met his servant, a black servant, James who lived in Soweto. This is the story. This man, this doctor, had been non-believer, the mayor of Johannesburg. He was really popular, really influential, rich, and he lived in a really rich house. And he employed a black servant from Soweto who had nothing, but he had Christ. He was a radiant Christian. And I met him. And he would witness to his master many times. You need to believe in Christ. Come out of Judaism. Come into Jesus. Come and believe in him. Jesus, come and join the church. Come and be born again. And this very influential politician, doctor, come politician was, okay, no, it's no problem. No problem. I'm okay. Bit of religion in my spare time. Then one day, while he was the mayor, his wife had an affair and left him. And it was in the Johannesburg newspapers, national news. His career and reputation collapsed. And he went to his servant and said, tell me about Jesus. And he led him to Christ. When I met him a few years later, he was a believer. He'd retired, and having been the mayor of Johannesburg, in his retirement, he said, I'll use my medical skills to help the poorest of the poor in the villages right out in the sticks. And there he was on the same team as me. And I was just a volunteer from England, driving cars and doing a bit of research and helping the medical director. The humble man was proud of the fact that he had Christ. The servant was just such a secure guy. And the rich man found one day that, like it, it always happens sooner or later, sometimes at your deathbed, often before, your status 
evaporates. So on one occasion, I, he said to me, you can go and stay in my house in Johannesburg. And I was traveling up there, so I stayed in his house. There was no one living in the house. And so I went and stayed in the house of the mayor of Johannesburg on my own, the ex-mayor of Johannesburg in this really posh area. And I met the servant. And he said to me, the, the ex-mayor, well, when you're up in Johannesburg, you can drive my car. So I arrived late at night. The next morning, I opened the garage, and there was a huge white Mercedes. <laughs> now, I was 19. The only car I'd driven at that point was an Austin Maxi, <laughs> which, for those of you who are not old enough to know, is an old-fashioned tank <laughs> produced by a company once known as British Leyland. So I thought, here's this rich man, now he's serving the poor. Here's the remnants of his riches hanging around. Next day I got in the car, opened up the garage, drove down the freeway. I was terrified, absolutely <laughs> terrified. <laughs> terrified of scratching the car. After about half an hour, my terror changed to pride. I suddenly thought, I'm quite important now. <laughs> Waving at people as they were going past. <laughs> get out of the fuel station and they think this must be the son of the millionaire. <laughs> and I thought, wow, isn't it easy, you know, to fall into that trap? The rich and self-sufficient need to come to a point of humility. It's not going to save them. The poor, economically, educationally, relationally, with Christ, is rich. The servant from Soweto led the mayor of Johannesburg to the foot of the cross. And the mayor of Johannesburg became my friend on a volunteer team in the outback, serving the poor of the poor. It was a great experience. And it's the best way I can illustrate this verse. And I think you know what I mean. Verse 12 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And I give this to you as my gift today. I memorized this as a young Christian. And I encourage you to memorize it in whichever version of the Bible you use, <coughs> even if it's not the nearly infallible version which I'm reading from now. <laughs> Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I give this verse to some of you as a gem. All he asks you to do is to persevere and stand the trial. One day, you'll receive the crown of life. This is a reference to both salvation in the ultimate time when Christ comes again, but there's more to it than that. When the apostles use the word crown, there's an intimation of reward for faithfulness. And for Christians, the greatest aspiration should be not just to be saved on the final day, which is in the cross, we'll never earn it, but to be shown to be faithful with the calling he gave us 
and especially honored by Christ in that day will be those who persevered under trial. Things really came against you. You never really understood why. You didn't understand the dark side. You didn't understand the human opposition. You didn't understand that circumstance that brought illness dramatically or an accident or some economic catastrophe. We never always understand these things. But James says, I can foresee a day when Christ himself will look you in the eye and say, well done. You receive a crown of life. That's what he said to those scattered Jews, Messianic Jews, all the way throughout the Roman Empire. Finally, coming towards the end now, uh, verse 13 to 15. When tempted, <clears throat> no one should say, oh, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The context of this temptation is pressure and trials. That's the context. Trials, hard times, sometimes tempt you to go down the easy path on the sinful tendencies that you have in your heart. Have you ever had that feeling? You know, things get really tough, and you... You want to kind of justify yourself, you want to pity yourself, you want to protect yourself, you want to avoid pressure, you want to make it easy, you want to explain why everyone else is in the wrong, that sort of thing. When tempted, no one should blame it on God. He doesn't tempt you to sin. No temptation comes because there's something inside us that if we cultivate it, develops a sinful habit and then it leads to a spiritual death. Many years ago, a man phoned me up. He was a church leader from another part of the country and he said, I need to come and see you. And I walked with him along the river and he said, I lead a church. Things are going well, but I'm not very happy in my marriage. Met this other woman and what do you think about you know, do I have to stay with the marriage? I just don't think I can cope with it. Well, as we walked along towards the weir, I gave him a bit of advice. I said, be careful. Desire will give birth to sin. And sin will give birth to death. He struggled. We walked, we talked, we prayed. He left me. I didn't hear from him for a long time. The next thing I heard, he'd left his wife, gone off with somebody else, destroyed his family, destroyed his career, nearly destroyed the church. Very easy to take the easy, what seems to be the easy or obvious path. And James says, don't do it and don't blame it on God. Take responsibility for the fact that there's something inside you that's activated by temptation. And finally, verses 16 to 18. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of uh, 
first fruits of all that he has created. It's interesting that James comes back to something we had in our prophetic ministry this morning. He comes back to a doctrine of who is God. Who is the Father particularly? The Father doesn't change. He gives good and perfect gifts. The goodness of God is an utterly unnegotiable permanent reality underlying every experience of human life, however complicated and painful. Don't be deceived to start thinking wrongly about God because the pressure comes. That's what he's saying. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes, they, oh, it's God's fault. Oh, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you make it easier? Why don't you give me an easy way out? Did you cause me to do this? Are you trying to make me sin, God? No, 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 no to any of those things. He's unchanging. And he's good. And he loves you, as we heard earlier on. Don't be deceived by circumstances to start thinking wrongly about God. He'll vindicate you. He'll judge evil. By the way, folks, when we see him judging evil, we will be in awe. We'll be astonished. We'll be humbled. He'll hold everyone to account. And he'll hold every persecutor of the church in this world to account in every generation on the day of judgment. Leave it to him. He'll expose every demonic strategy. It's not our business. Our business is faithfulness and trust. Igor and Tanya, they just trust their Heavenly Father. They don't know where their income's going to come from long term. They don't know when the lift's going to be repaired. They don't know how they're going to manage the mother-in-law. They don't know where they're going to get the time for all the things they need to do, but they trust God. That's what we need to do. My final comment. This last verse, I've been thinking about this, a very precious verse too. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the first fruits of all he created. I've been pondering that, and I think it's a particular word to that first generation church. They were the first fruits because they were the first to hear the gospel. And let me say this. Because they were faithful, there was a church in the second generation. And because they were faithful, there was a church in the third generation, when still the church was very unpopular. And because they were faithful, there was a church in the fourth generation, So these guys are the first fruits. And here we are 2,000 years later and we're in the same church. And we stand on the shoulders of brothers and sisters who've been faithful to Christ in every generation and every culture known to man where the church has existed. And they're the first fruits because they're the first generation. Now let's just end. What happened to Jesus? By an extraordinary coincidence, we have a record of his death in a Jewish 
historian's writing. His name is Josephus. He mentions James, the half-brother of Jesus. He lived in Jerusalem at the time. He wrote a history. And this is how James's life went. And about 32 or 33 AD, maybe, he believed in his brother Jesus. About 20 years later, he wrote this letter. And about approximately, we don't know for certain, about 10 years after he wrote this letter, according to Josephus, James, still in Jerusalem, was um, picked on by the Jewish religious authorities and they had him executed. He paid with his blood for the message he delivered to you. He, according to Josephus writing, not a Christian, he resisted their attempts to get him to conform to Judaism right to the end. He proclaimed he believed in Jesus. Until he died, he was executed. And so he fulfilled verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. These are the first fruits upon whom we stand. And with these words, we start our great journey through the book of James. Let's stand together. Let's have the musicians.